well, I don't know if it's the opening of childcare or the Lord's table that has brought you here, but I just want you to know that I'm happy that you're here. In a season of social distancing, I can't wait to not say that word ever again. Um, it is good to be in the house of God. It is good to be with believers in Christ. It is good to see your faces in person. It warms this old pastor's heart. Um, if you've not been around uh, the PCA or churches just in general, I think, have a tendency to be a little hesitant when it comes to images of Jesus. Have you heard this? Have you experienced this? We tend to be a little wary of, of holding and having those things around. Um, but that doesn't keep folks from trying to, in some ways, capture Christ's likeness and kind of produce that, mass produce that. But if you've noticed that most attempts to somehow produce Christ's likeness for us are always riddled with bias, right? Most of us grew up with images somewhere, maybe in your church or your basement or your fellowship hall, of the image of the white Jesus with the, with the flowing hair, uh, just kind of sitting there, stoic, looking off into nowhere, um, you know, perhaps in some part of your college career or maybe on your desk even now, you have the, the, the chill bobblehead Jesus that has Jesus kind of with his big smile pointing out and, and just, you know, kind of looking chill and easygoing, laid back. And, and you can't imagine a Jesus like that ever getting a rise out of, out of him. That everything must be cool and everything must be love all the time. And so part of our ca- caution in trying to capture and display the image of Jesus, uh, not only as individuals, but it's, it involves our church history a little bit. We have a tendency to take images and forms and, and statues of Jesus and Mary and other important figures and, and ascribe to them more worth, more value, more importance, uh, more spiritual kind of like glow than we should. But our struggle with idols is actually much, much older than that. The second commandment forbids us from making idols because God's people have a tendency to want to replace God as soon as we feel abandoned by him. Christians have a a history uh, of acting insecure and irrational as soon as God isn't visible to us. As soon as he's out of the picture for a moment, you look through the Bible and you see moment after moment where we replace God. If we can't uh, pin God down and have him with us, but, but all of this really can't be blamed on God because even in the garden, when Adam walked with God, his presence wasn't enough. We look to replace him. We look for other things. We know that God's word promises to us that he'll never leave us never forsake us, and we also know that God is not one to break his promises. And so when we feel Jesus is distant, instead of waiting on him, instead of seeking greater closeness, instead we often try to move on, try to replace him, just as our our history has shown and our tendencies have shown, with, with something that's instant, something that's instantly gratifying. But like all idols... It has the same doomed ending of not satisfying us, that that ultimately we'll we'll find them to be a disappointment. Our text this morning finds Jesus coming back to his disciples after being apart from them for just a few few hours. If you have your Bible handy and you want to start turning to Luke 9, 
this morning. That's where we've been over the last few weeks. And we're, I'm going to start reading in verse 37 and go through verse 45. It should be on the screen for you as well, but I'm going to read it for us. And if you're able, would you stand in honor of God's word as I read it for us? Luke 9, starting in verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But then when they were all marveling at everything that he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they may not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's take our seats. Father, this morning, even as we come, we pray and uh, that you would come and speak a greater word, your spirit would come and move and, uh, and show us these teachings. Do not hide from us uh, the revelation of your scripture, illuminate it to our hearts, may it change and direct our lives, Father, so we may live lives in obedience to your calling. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Very recently in our study of Luke, we've had some significant moments between Jesus and his disciples. In verse 20, uh, the disciples acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. And then last week in verse 28, three of Jesus' closest actually share this very intimate moment with Jesus at the top of a mountain. Where they see Je a glimpse of Jesus as he was, as he is, and as he will be again. And it's such a significant impact on him that in verse 36 we see that they, they kept silent and they told no one of the day of, of what they had seen that day as, as, as long as Jesus was with them. And that's in stark contrast to verse 21, if you look ahead, uh, where they've experienced and they've acknowledged Jesus as Messiah, but Jesus has to command them to silence. I don't want us to miss the fact that this special moment probably also has a great significant impact on Jesus as well. Jesus has just had this awesome experience where he's gotten a taste of home. He's spoken with Moses and Elijah. He's heard his father's voice. For a moment, he's once again clothed in radiance, splendor, and glory that was all his before time began. But it isn't very long before Jesus is reminded that he isn't home yet. In our text this morning, we see Jesus' desire is that his disciples would be marked with the same confidence of his presence, whether he's physically present or not. So Jesus and the three are coming down from this experience on the mountain, and they're met by a commotion at the foot. I love Mark's gospel. I think it gives us greater detail of the story. 
So I'm just going to read it for us in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd, we know this to be the father of the boy, answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. It's in Mark 9. Hearing this, Jesus gives a pretty sharp response. Going back to kind of our text this morning in Luke 9, verse 41. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? That's that's a pretty strong response coming from Jesus. Why such a strong response? So we know from Luke 9, 1, that Jesus has already granted his disciples power and authority to drive out demons. So as Jesus is on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, the other disciples are asked to cast out a demon. That's, that's given a life-threatening condition to this father's only son. And when they aren't able to do it, an argument ensues between the disciples and the religious leaders. Now, we're left to speculate on what they were arguing about. But what we know is that Jesus wasn't a fan of this argument. Now, it's easy to blame the scribes here because we know that many of them were just kind of following along with Jesus looking for opportunities to discredit his disciples and his ministry. And I can't think of a better opportunity to turn the opinion of the crowd against this movement that's, that's taking the thunder from them than the disciples' public failure to heal this father's son and the, the pristine opportunity that Jesus is nowhere to be found to kind of shame them and put them in their place. So, again, we're left to speculate what this argument is about, but the context of of the Gospels gives us this sense that this may have been an opportune moment for the scribes to pounce. But we can't let the disciples off the hook either. Jesus doesn't. The disciples try and weren't, and we're not told why their attempts to heal this boy failed. But when their attempts failed, we know that they had a choice. Their choice was to wait on Jesus. They could have waited on Jesus or do something in their own strength. That was their choice. What we see by their decision to argue with the scribes while this boy continues to suffer right at their feet is that ultimately by taking up their own mantle and doing something in their own strength, they are demonstrating that they have lost hope that God is still working. They've lost hope that Jesus will return. That Jesus could be working in their waiting. That's why we see such a strong response from Jesus here. Those that Jesus would soon entrust the church, his bride to, to care for, in his brief absence, are running to their own understanding. It's it's the garden all over again. I don't want us to miss this image because I often feel like we create one just like it. Yesterday, the church celebrated Reformation Day. If you're not familiar with Reformation Day, it's this 
moment where uh, a leader, a particular leader of the church, Martin Luther, penned 95 uh, indictments to the church that he loved on the, on, on the door, saying that this is not what Jesus taught, and it's not the church for which he died. It needed reforming because it had gotten off track, so corrupt that it was indistinguishable than some other money-hungry monarchy where man and not God was the king and the head of. If Jesus desires for his disciples to live lives marked with the same confidence in his presence as in his absence, then what do we do when we get off track? What do we do when we run to our own understanding? What happens when we feel alone and we speak to our problems like the disciples did and they don't vanish into thin air? What happens when things that, we, that have worked before or possibly in the past for us, don't work anymore. And it appears that Jesus is nowhere to be found, that somehow the equation, maybe I'm plugging in A and B, but somehow C has gotten loose in the connection. How do I, how do I jiggle the cable? What do I do in order to make it work again? We reduce Jesus to some formula that should always work. How is it, how long is it before we lose our cool when Jesus doesn't give us what we're hoping for immediately. He doesn't solve our problems quickly. Going back to the disciples here, as they see their attempts to heal this boy fail, the, the, the alternative here is, is, is one that's offered to us, but it's not a popular one. The disciples could have chosen to stay with this father. They could have chosen to sit there and hold his hand and, and hold the boy, lamenting over his pain, suffering alongside with this boy and his father as they waited for Jesus to act, praying and waiting in hope that he would return and he would act on their behalf. Mark's gospel hints at this once again, giving us a little bit more detail in like the post-autopsy of this whole thing and this interaction in verse 28 of, of chapter 9, and when they had entered the house, the disciples asked Jesus privately, why could we not cast it out? Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They aren't able, the disciples aren't able to provide quick and easy solutions. But that doesn't mean they can't be helpful. That doesn't mean that they can't serve. Prayer is a biblical response to unanswered brokenness and suffering we see and experience, but lack the power to fix in our own strength. It's, it's a biblical way for God's children to groan, appropriately groan the brokenness that still exists in our society, in our own lives, in our own bodies, in the bodies of those that we love, as we long for God to act on our behalf. And as we do this, we're exercising faith by running to him over and over and over. How many times have you found yourself seeking answers or seeking actions from God in, in, the, in the monotony of seeking him, just 
you just grow weary. You just get tired of him not answering and him not providing solutions. You give up. You look to other things. You medicate. You numb. So Jesus comes back and he acts on this father's behalf at his request. Jesus heals the son and he delivers him back to the father. And, and, and the response is jubilation. The disciples, the father, the crowds, they're, they're not arguing anymore. They're, they're all marveling at the majesty of God, it says. And, and I want to look at this for a second in light of our previous week's study on, on how the disciples and crowds are generally acting and, and kind of interacting with Christ is they're, they're attempting in every way to prolong Christ's appearance, to, to keep him here on earth, to, to somehow say, this is, this is your kingdom now. This is where things could get good. And so by Jesus coming back from the mountain and him fixing everything that we were arguing about and say, look, we've got nothing to argue about anymore. You're here. The boy's healed. Everything's good. Let's just, let's just throw a party. Just previously, we have Peter on the mountain, and, and Moses and Elijah show up, and they, and they want to set him up with earthly accommodations. Let's, let's build these tents. Let's have them stay here. We can all stay together. This can be the new temple. We don't want to accept our temporary residency. Look at Jesus' response in verse 44 of Luke 9. Let these words sink into your ears. If Jesus says that, we should probably read it twice. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they may not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. It's a reminder to us, Jesus has a bigger picture in view. That this moment, this temporary moment of, of marble and majesty is to be overshadowed by something far greater. And we can often offer it, operate very similar to the disciples. We want everything to work out here. And when it doesn't, we look for a replacement instead of waiting on Jesus. But when it does work, and we get a taste we want to marvel. We never want it to end. And we, and we forget oftentimes the best is yet to come. We come with these, uh, we, we immediately start jumping and saying, okay, well, that worked that time. It must going to keep working, and this is, this is just going to be the way things are. But then ultimately we find ourselves disappointed again. And we forget that what we experience here is a taste. This table, it's a taste. This fellowship that we experience, it's a taste the goodness of love between husband and wife, when it's great, when it's awesome, it's just a taste. It's a shadow of what's to come. He promises, he goes to prepare a place, a better place. He'll use any means necessary to do what he must do. His supernatural Jesus powers here to conceal from them for now so that they don't try to stand in his way, so that he can go to Jerusalem. This taste that Jesus got on the mountain has to have Jesus longing for heaven. This moment where he hears his father's voice again and he's, 
he's clothed and he sees these other great men around him, has to have him longing for heaven. But he knows the way is through the cross. He's convinced of the promises and truth that God has given to his people, that the way is through suffering, the way is through the cross, that he must remain faithful, that these sinful, unfaithful, ungrateful, hateful, uh, murderous people that he loves and that he has come to save must first betray him and hand him over to evil men. When we experience disappointment, struggle, brokenness, these are great opportunities for God's children to grow in his likeness by continuing to seek the Lord in these moments in prayer and, and, and grow in our longing for Christ's return. In our commitment to the very mission that stands between us and this return. When we ask for something and God doesn't answer right away, it's not because he's absent. It's not because he doesn't care. In fact, it's quite the opposite. He cares a great deal about you. By his willingness to grow you as you continue to grow in confidence that his promises remain true and that that God works in our waiting. Are we willing to put aside our worldly inclinations for instant solutions and relief or worshiping idols and instead continue to practice the disciplines of faith by drawing from the well of Christ and living on daily bread while we're in the desert? This reference to the people of God who every day, manna, every day, manna, living on the daily faithfulness of God, the disciplines of faith. In contrast to that, when you ask for something and God answers, does your heart settle? Does it, does it seek to, to grab hold and latch in for that taste and kind of center your world around taste and forget that the feast is still to come? Have we become content, complacent with the here and now? Are you settling for shadows and tastes and forgetting that the best is yet to come, and that this feast begins as we commit ourselves to the mission and the work and the obedience of following after Christ. This is how we hasten the day. Hebrews eleven six reminds us that without faith, it's impossible to please God, a very, very good thing to land on in all of this, where we could easily go to our works and say, okay, what is, Jeff has given me a new equation. To, to start and stir this up. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because in Hebrews eleven six, 6, those who come must first believe not only that he exists, but he offers something greater than the world can provide you for those who seek him. Christianity is not just a group, a party to join, something we do on Sundays. It is, it is a life centered around a Savior that we embrace in all areas of our life, seen and unseen. When we come to the table, it's just a taste of what's to come. 
That's why it's so important that those who come all profess to follow Jesus. It takes faith to participate and, and, and receive anything from this table. Jesus offers to you and me this morning his indwelling Holy Spirit to affirm these truths for you in your heart and in your mind. Jesus offers his indwelling Holy Spirit this morning to build you up. He offers his Spirit this morning to hold you fast in waiting, to nourish you and encourage you in the waiting. Pray together. Father, I picture this image of your disciples when you said, when their reply to you was, where else can we go? It's a vivid reminder for us this morning of we could be in a lot of places. We could run to a lot of things. The world gives us opportunities to see things that maybe perhaps provide for us or satisfy us temporarily. But Father, we know cannot provide for us long term. And so Father, this morning may your spirit work so mightily within us that it convinces us over the shadows and the lies of this world that you are good and your truths endure forever. You are worthy of our worship. And that we don't, when we don't see and experience instantaneous relief and satisfaction, that is not a sign that you have abandoned us. It's not a sign that you have given up. That's not a sign that you have lost your resolve or you've had a hiccup in your strength. Father, convince your people, your disciples this morning, that you are working in our waiting that you can work in our suffering. And even when you answer us, when we get the answers that we want, that this this is not the end, that there is something so much better that awaits those who continue to seek your face. That don't grow content and settle, but continue to seek your face and be obedient to your will. Father, we take this table this morning as as a taste, but we pray that the feast would soon begin. That your people, all of them, called from every tribe, tongue, and nation, would gather around your table and we would begin the feast and the celebration that will not end. It's in your Holy Son's name that we pray. Amen.